Hello, Sightliners. On this episode of the Sightline Podcast, I will be analyzing and discussing the poem entitled Ballad of Birmingham. We chose this poem because of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which at the time that I wrote this script had occurred four days prior. Um, While Dr. King is not present in the poem, his teachings and beliefs can still be seen in its underlying messages. Ballad of Birmingham is a poem by Dudley Randall, which he wrote in 1965 on the bombing of a church that had happened two years prior. So without further ado, here is Ballad of Birmingham, orated by Sophia Johar. On the bombing of a church in Birmingham, Alabama, 1963. Mother dear, may I go downtown instead of out to play and march the streets of Birmingham in a freedom march today? No, baby, no, you may not go, for the dogs are fierce and wild, and clubs and hoses, guns and jails aren't good for a little child. But mother, I won't be alone. Other children will go with me and march the streets of Birmingham to make our country free. No, baby, no, you may not go, for I fear those guns will fire. But you may go to church instead and sing in the children's choir. She has combed and brushed her night dark hair and bathed rose petal sweet and drawn white gloves on her small brown hands and white shoes on her feet. The mother smiled to know her child was in the sacred place, but that smile was the last smile to come upon her face. For when she heard the explosion, her eyes grew wet and wild. She raced through the streets of Birmingham, calling for her child. She clawed through bits of glass and brick, then lifted out a shoe. Oh, here's the shoe my baby wore, but baby, where are you? first thing that stood out to me as far as imagery goes is the line and drawn white gloves on her small brown hands and white shoes on her feet. The symbolism of the white fabrics covering, as it says, her small brown hands really stood out to me. Maybe the author wanted to imply the relationship between theology and people with white skin, specifically Christianity and Caucasian Americans, specifically Christian Caucasian American lawmakers, specifically at this point in American history though I guess it is still a problem today, but that's a whole nother can of worms to get into. As far as meter and rhythm goes, and for those of you uneducated, rhythm and meter is basically the pattern of stressed and unstressed syllables in a line of poetry. Like, um, for instance, in this one, the mother smiled to know her child was in the sacred place, but that smile was the less smile to come upon her face. That is an example of rhythm and meter in this piece of poetry. A line whose rhythm I found interesting is calling for her child. Up to this point in the poem, the number of syllables in each line has been limited to seven, eight, nine, or six. This is the only line where the number of syllables is different, calling for her child five syllables. I believe the author did this purposefully, wanting it to stand out as an emotional line, different from the rest of the poem. Yet another thing that stood out to me as far as rhythm and meter goes that can't be heard with Sophia's reading of the poem, but if you read it in more of a um, rhythm, with more of a rhythm to it, you can hear it, and I will demonstrate now. The mother smiled to know her child was in the sacred place, but that smile was the last smile to come upon her face. And as you can probably hear, but that, but that. It feels very rushed, but that smile was the last smile to come upon her face. And while doing other takes of this same clip, I have noticed that, but that smile was the last smile. You can change the rhythm around so that way it fits better and works more smoothly, I would say, with the rest of the poem. Um, It's 
interesting to me how just different ways that you can speak something can completely change the way that it sounds. Well, I guess that's how speech works in the first place, but you get what I mean. Now, circling back to the beginning where I mentioned how Dr. King's teachings and beliefs can be seen in this poem um, and its underlying messages. While it may not be clear for those of you uneducated, it was clear to me, at least, that there are multiple underlying just feels of the same things that Dr. King taught um, in his ministry, I guess, while he was on Earth. Less so in the um, actual poem and more so in the events surrounding the poem, the actual bombing of this church in Birmingham and the implications of that for this community and people, people of color in general. Um, and that's what I'm going to explain to you now. And so here is some information about the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church on Sunday, September 15th, 1963. Firstly, um, four children were murdered in this bombing. Addie Mae Collins, 14 years old, Cynthia Wesley, 14 years old, Carol Robertson, 14 years old, and Carol Denise McNair, 11 years old. On September 15th, 1963, 59 years ago at 10.22 a.m., the 16th Street Baptist Church was attacked in an act of domestic terrorism, four deaths, and 14 to 22 people were injured. And I already read to you the names of those who were victims. The perpetrators were Thomas Blanton, who was convicted, and Robert Chambliss, who was also convicted, Bobby Cherry, convicted, and Herman Cash, who was alleged. The motive of this bombing was racism and in support for racial segregation. I will now provide some background for the bombing. In the years that led up to the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, Birmingham had earned a national reputation as a tense and violent and racially segregated city in which even tentative racial integration in any form was met with violent resistance. Martin Luther King Jr. described Birmingham as, quote, possibly the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States, unquote. Birmingham's commissioner of public safety, Theophilus Eugene, quote, Bull Connor, led the effort in enforcing radical segregation in the city through the use of violent tactics. Black and white residents of Birmingham had access to different public amenities, such as water fountains and places of public gatherings, such as movie theaters. The city had no black police officers or firefighters, and most black residents could expect to find not well-paying jobs in the slightest as cooks or cleaners. And black residents did not just have to experience segregation in the context of leisure and employment, but also in the context of their freedom and well-being. Given the state's disenfranchisement of most black people since the turn of the century by making voter registration essentially impossible, few of the city's black residents were still registered to vote. Bombings at black homes and institutions were a regular occurrence, with at least 21 separate explosions recorded at black properties and churches in the eight years before 1963. However, none of these explosions had resulted in fatalities. 
that was until the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church. Something that I found while researching this was that the attacks earned this city the nickname Bombingham, a play on words of Birmingham. And now I will get into the details of the bombing. One thing that I will say before getting into these details is that um, some of these images that I'm going to be talking about, these things that are described in the article that I was reading, um, do have some rather somewhat disturbing descriptions, not anything crazy, nothing inappropriate for school, or else I wouldn't be doing this podcast and you wouldn't be listening to it. In the early morning of Sunday, September 15th, 1963, four members of the United Clans of America, Thomas Edwin Blanton Jr., Robert Edward Chambliss, Bobby Frank Cherry, and allegedly Herman Frank Cash, planted a minimum of 15 sticks of dynamite with a time delay under the steps of the church close to the basement. At approximately 10.22 a.m., an anonymous man phoned the 16th Street Baptist Church. The call was answered by the acting Sunday school secretary, a 14-year-old girl named Carolyn Mull. The anonymous caller simply said these words, three minutes. He said this to Mull before terminating the call. Less than one minute later, the bomb exploded. Five children were in the basement at the time of the explosion in a restroom close to the stairwell, changing into their choir robes in preparation for a sermon entitled, A Rock That Will Not Roll. According to one survivor, the explosion shook the entire building and propelled the girls' bodies through the air, quote, like rag dolls, end quote. The explosion blew a hole measuring seven feet in diameter in the church's rear wall and a crater five feet wide and two feet deep in the ladies' basement lounge, destroying the rear steps to the church and blowing a passing motorist out of his car. Several other cars were also parked near the site of the blast and they were destroyed, and windows of properties located more than two blocks away from the church were also damaged. All but one church's stained glass windows were destroyed in the explosion. The sole stained glass window, largely undamaged in the explosion, depicted Christ leading a group of young children. Hundreds of individuals, some of them lightly wounded, converged on the church to search the debris for survivors as the police erected barricades around the church and several outraged men scuffled with police. An estimated 2,000 black people converged on the scene in the hours following the explosion. The church's pastor, the Reverend John Cross Jr., attempted to placate the crowd by loudly reciting the 23rd Psalm through a bullhorn. Psalm 23, for those of you who don't know, is the the Lord is my shepherd um, psalm. And here is an English translation of it in King James Version. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Ye, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me and all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the article that I was reading, there were some somewhat graphic descriptions of what happened to the girls, or at least the state that they were found, which I will not go into here, but just to really get across how horrible, sadistic, and twisted, and just 
plain evil this attack was, um, I will say that the explosion was so intense that one of the girls could only be identified through her clothing and a ring. Um, I'll let that stand for itself. In 2001, um, the pastor of the church, Reverend John Cross, recollected that the girls' bodies were found, quote, stacked on top of each other, clung together, end quote. All four girls were pronounced dead on arrival at the Hillman Emergency Clinic. The younger sister of one of the victims, who was blinded in one eye by the attack but did survive, in her later recollections on the bombing, she would recall that in the moments immediately before the explosion, she had watched her sister, Addie, tying her dress sash. And another sister, 16-year-old Junie Collins, would later recall that shortly before the explosion, she had been sitting in the basement of the church reading the Bible and had observed Addie Mae Collins tying the dress sash of Carol Denise McNair before she returned upstairs to the ground floor of the church. There were events of violence in the hours that followed this horrible attack, and later funerals would be held for the people who were murdered, the children who were murdered. And in the initial investigation, the FBI were involved and were able to confirm that the explosion had been caused by a device that was purposely planted beneath the steps to the church, close to the women's lounge, which I think in my personal opinion, was pretty obvious given the fact that the explosion crater was in the steps of the church next to the women's lounge, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Information was lacking, physical evidence was lacking, the witnesses were reluctant to talk. Also, at that time, information from surveillance was not admissible in court. As a result, no federal charges were filed in the 60s. Information of likely suspects was relayed directly to the director of the FBI, who was J. Edgar Hoover at this time, who has a history of not being able to follow up on cases, but again, I get ahead of myself. No persecutions of the four suspects ever ensued in the 60s, like I said. And there had been a history of mistrust with the local and federal investigators. Later, the same year, J. Edgar Hoover formally blocked any impending federal prosecutions against the suspects and refused to disclose any evidence his agents had obtained with state or federal prosecutors. In 1968, the FBI formally closed their investigation into the bombing without filing charges against any of their named suspects. The files were sealed by order of J. Edgar Hoover. The case wouldn't be reopened until January 1971, when William Baxley was elected Attorney General of Alabama. Baxley had been a student at the University of Alabama when he heard about the bombing in 1963, and later recollected, quote, I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what, end quote. Within only one week of being sworn into office, Baxley had researched original police files into the bombing, um, discovering that the original police documents were quote, mostly worthless, end quote. 
Baxley formally reopened the case in 1971. He was able to build trust with key witnesses, some of whom had been reluctant to testify in the first investigation. After Baxley requested access to the original FBI files on the case, he learned that evidence accumulated by the FBI against the named suspects between 1963 and 1965 had not been revealed to the local prosecutors in Birmingham. Although he met with initial resistance from the FBI, in 1976, Baxley was formally presented with some of the evidence which had been compiled by the FBI after he had publicly threatened to expose the Department of Justice for withholding evidence which could result in the prosecution of the perpetrators of the bombing. The prosecution of Robert Chambliss took place. He was aged 73, and before his trial, he remained free upon a $200,000 bond that was raised by his family and supporters and posted on October 18th. He pled not guilty, insisting that although he had purchased a case of dynamite less than two weeks before the bombing, he had given the dynamite to a Klansman and FBI agent provocateur named Gary Thompson Rowe Jr. So, many years after this took place, some of the people were convicted of doing this, and there was even mention of a possible fifth conspirator who died in the time that passed, and it's, I have, well, I would say I have no words, but I do have many, many choice words that I could say about this situation, about this horrible, horrible, sadistic, and just evil attack on these innocent people just going to church. Um, so, as it turns out, there was less mention of Dr. King in this bombing. And if this is well-received, I will continue to break this down, describing more, because I really enjoy talking about, well, I guess talking in general, but I think it's important that we shed light on these horrible things, this darkest point that humanity is capable of and also the light coming out of this, the hundreds and hundreds of people who came to check right directly after the bombing and later to rebuild the church, the hundreds of thousands of dollars that were given, the 2,000 worshipers who continue to go to this church today. It is important that we remember these things and never, ever, ever forget them so they will never, ever happen again. We must be able to see the light. The community that came together to rebuild this church in the face of such horrible, awful circumstances. We must remember. We must share. We must talk. And we must never forget. Thank you.